the Messiah, the captain, a Rangers icon, a Stanley Cup champion. We are thrilled to chat with 1994 champion and face of the Rangers franchise, Mark Messier, on today's show. The post Larry Brooks also stops by to discuss the Kravtsov saga and head coach Gerard Gallant's expectations. So join us on a special Mark Messier edition of Up in the Blue Seats from the New York Post. Welcome back to Up in the Blue Seats podcast, our New York Rangers podcast from the New York Post. We have a special edition of the program today. Of course, Larry Brooks on the New York Post is going to join us, but our headliner guest, the man of the hour, the Messiah, the Stanley Cup champion of 1994, Mark Messier, joins the program in just a few minutes. But before we go to Mark, before we go to Larry, let's welcome in your host of Up in the Blue Seats, that would be the Queen of the Post, Molly Walker. And her co-host, Rangers great, number 10, Ron Duguay. Well, thank you, Jake. Lots to talk about today. And yes, there is a level of excitement with Mark Messier coming on today. As most of you probably know, I uh, spent 10 years playing against Mark had to compete against him, the Edmonton Oilers winning four Stanley Cups. So I've got so much to ask him, especially with him coming out with his book, him being on television, and just basically him, Mark Messier, where he's at now. There was a time where we thought that Mark Messier might have been the new New York Ranger coach. So we're going to ask him all this stuff. But right now, it's uh, Rangers who there was a time where we felt like, wow, this team is going to be hard to beat four in a row. And then something happens at Madison Square Garden, which we've seen this kind of stuff before. Team goes on a road, get home very relaxed, and then they have this loss against Calgary. And now when something like that happens, you get to know the feel for your coaching staff and Gerard Gallant's, how they accept losses like a loss that we saw the other night. Anyways, let's get to it. Molly, welcome to the show again. I have to ask you about um, the mood around the Rangers and the team and Gerard Gallant this past few days. What's it been like with Gerard not accepting losses like we saw the other night? Well, I think we get into this a little bit with Larry Brooks later, but Gerard Gallant has a very, very specific standard that he expects the team to rise to each and every night and he doesn't really have the development touch that David Quinn had so his expectations are a lot higher of of younger players specifically Alexi Lafreniere and guys like Capo Caco and we get into it with Larry talking about how Lafreniere has been playing the last couple days we'll get into that a little bit later in the show but Ron I really wanted to go back to Mark Messier I mean we are having the captain on our podcast later and I'll tell you my house has just been flipped upside down with my mom knowing that Mark Messier is coming on our podcast. She was prepared to come home from school just so that she can come into the conversation and, and say hi to him. But she's actually going to his book signing later in the day. And it specifically says on the flyer that there will be no meet and greet, no pictures, no nothing. And my mom said, oh, you wait and you <laughs> see, <laughs> I will get to him. So I just wanted to ask Ron, I guess, what have, has your experience been with Mark Messier playing against him 
for all those years? Well, I had been in the league a couple of years already. So I was, uh, I guess, a little more experienced have, having played in the NHL. And you grew up pretty quick, especially back then. And then uh, the Oilers were starting. They were just beginning to be good where Gretzky was there, Messi was there, and then Glenn Anderson and the rest of them. Edmonton wasn't really a threat until those guys came in there. And it was how they played the game. Messier being a little bit bigger, stronger than most players, uh, he came in with the skill set. But he was a type of guy which they early on they compared him to Gordie Howe. And if you know anything about Gordie Howe, uh, skilled but tough and potentially dirty. So Mess was just like that as a young man. And I had to go up against him on faceoffs. And really, the, you know, the one-on-one battles that you go through with different players. And he already had a reputation. So he was a tough guy. But I respected him because he wasn't necessarily a real dirty player. It wasn't like he would clip you in the face with a stick or anything like that. He would just play you hard and he would take the body. So I got to... a appreciate him and the Edmonton Oilers because the type of game that they played was a game that was a lot of fun. It was essentially pawn hockey, uh, scoring a lot of goals back and forth, exchanging goals, but still they had a toughness to them, which a lot of it was led by a guy like Mark Messier. So I got to experience him. I was around him. It wasn't until at the end of our career where we actually got to know each other, where as Ranger alumni, uh, we played a few fun exhibition games. And where I really got to know Mess is when we went to Russia one year. I think this going back like four years ago, we were a North American team going against the Russians. We played a two-game series. In game number one, and Gretzky was on that team, Brett Hall, Lemieux, we had a pretty good team. And we went, and it was only supposed to be this fun exhibition game, but game one, we play against the Russians. They beat us 5-3, which was fine. Home turf, we let them win. Well, we don't let them win, but they win. <laughs> and they, they were stacked up, Burry, McGillney, you name it. They were all, Larry Onoff, all these guys were on the team. So now it's game two, like two or three days later. And keep in mind, our friend Mike Keenan was coach. And so you can tell in the dressing room in game two, when Mess walked in, he had his game face on. And Gretz was different. Where the pregame was somewhat like, okay, they beat us game one. Now it's time to turn it up. So I got to experience Mark Messier, uh, who Mark Messier was. He's not a guy that is very loud in the dressing room. But when he says something, everyone listens. And you kind of follow his lead. So I got to experience that in the dressing room and actually being on the ice at the same time with him. So... I'm anxious to talk to him because there's a lot of things that there's things that I don't know about him that I'm curious in asking him. So I'm really looking forward today, but he's a classy guy. I would love to have been a teammate of his in the NHL. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. From Russia with love, from Russia with mess is the yeah. remake featuring Ron Duguay and Mark Messi. I would pay to see that in theaters. I would go see that with a big popcorn. Was he intimidated by your hair? Because Mark did have the receding hairline and now he's a fell he's a fellow baldy he's been bald since his ranger days was for a while ron you didn't wear a helmet when did you first wear the helmet did he ever make quips about your hair at all no that that's the thing with mark he wasn't a guy that would be chirping it at you right he would just play you hard and if he didn't like and it was similar because i played against gordy Howe. gordy Howe was the same thing he didn't say a whole lot he would just play you hard so mess never really picked on me that way and as far as him being in russia 
you could tell that uh, because he played so much international hockey, he played for Canada Cup. Play, he represented Canada. So he was very comfortable being over there. Well, Molly's mom, Molly, uh, Wendy got the kiss on the cheek with Ron in the 80s. Is she going to get the one with, with Messier at his book signing now? Honestly, all my mom wants to do is just make her rounds to every single player and you know coach on that 1994 team just to thank them. That's her number one thing. So, Mark, that's all she wants to do if you're if a woman starts, you know, charging you at this book signing, she just wants to thank you. <laughs> She's cheating on you, Ron. She's cheating on you. How do you feel about this? <laughs> well, 10, ten remember this, 10 comes before 11. You will never replace. You will never be replaced. Don't worry, Ron. I noticed that now. Ron posted the picture. He said number 10 verse 11. Now there's meaning to it. I see what oh, you're doing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, Molly, I have to ask you, what what is Mark Messier meant to you? Because you're younger and 94 was a little bit when before your time. But what has Messier meant to you? Well, I grew up with the Daily News front cover of Mark Messier holding the Stanley Cup in my hallway for my entire life. So he has just been an absolute symbol of that 1994 team. And he's the captain. You know, he's just the captain of the Rangers, I feel like, for all times, always. He'll always be known as that. And the way that my mom talks about him, you would think he was the second coming of Jesus, even though we're Jewish. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, it, he really just, for me, has always been the face of that 1994 team, always been hanging in my hallway my entire life. So I just really connect him with that 1994 team and and it's a, a big day in my career to get to interview him for sure lachaim let's talk to the <laughs> mess himself mark messier joins up in the blue seats next courtesy of CBC Television, Bob Cole, Sam Rosen, Gary Thorne, Bill Clement, Gary Bettman, and our next guest. Take it away, Molly. Our guest this week has many names. The Captain, the Messiah, the man who guarantees wins and makes it happen. He recently added author to his impressive resume, and we're honored to have him come on Up in the Blue Seats to talk about it. Please welcome Mark Messier. Mark, how are you? I'm doing great, and it's always fun to sit in the blue seat. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time and, and just getting right into your new book, No One Wins Alone. I'm just curious to hear what the process was like from your point of view, from start to finish. 
Well, you know, I had been re, uh, you know asked to write a book for for many years, and I just didn't feel ready to write it. I first of all was terrified that nobody would be interested in what I had to say, <laughs> and <laughs> and second of all, I, I didn't really uh, finding somebody that uh, you were compatible with, finding somebody that you could sit across the table with and really enjoy the experience, and someone that you trust could actually articulate what you're trying to say in the book took some time and I met Jimmy Roberts, uh, the great Jimmy Roberts, who uh, I started golfing with and became friendly with. I shared some notes of leadership that I had collected over the years. He gave me his book called Breaking the Slump, which is about golfers and the psychology that they go through and the process they go through to get out of a slump. And that's what I was kind of angling the book towards is more about leadership, teamwork, psychology, uh, you know, the game that's played uh, between the years. Jimmy and I just seemed to hit it off and it was a real pleasure for me to sit beside him for that many hours and, and bring this book to uh, completion. Hey, Miss, I know before the book, you've been really involved in uh, the community and helping others with the Mark Messier Foundation, specifically the Boys and Girls Club. And most recently, you're advocating for female hockey. Can you share some of your goals with the foundation, what it's been? Because I know that your sister, Mary Kay, is very much involved with you there. Yeah, thank you, Ron, for that. Um, you know, when I came to New York, it was incredible the amount of requests I had to help in different ways with different charities. Obviously, was more than willing to help what I could. You know, through retirement, uh, through the Kingsbridge Armory, you know, turning that into or trying to turn that into the world's largest ice facility became apparent to me that I should start my own foundation and start concentrating on areas that were really kind of or resonated with me. That turned into basically trying to provide access and opportunity for underprivileged kids. The Kingsbridge project itself uh, was going to be at the world's largest indoor ice facility with nine sheets of ice, which was going to really provide that access and opportunity for boys and girls to play any kind of sport that they would dream of short track, speed skating, hockey, curling, ringette, uh, the list goes on. The foundation, the markmessierfoundation.org, is really about that. It's really about uh, you know helping kids and providing that access and opportunity in many different ways, not only through sport, but mostly through sport, which I think teaches kids so many great life lessons. And it's been an incredible response, actually. Uh, I had no idea the work involved to, to start an organization, to run an organization, but I have an amazing board, you know, run by my sister, Mary Kay's uh, white, uh, husband, Aldo Esposito. And uh, it's been challenging, gratifying, and but to see the end result and, and the kids that you can help along the way is... Uh, just incredible. Now, I know that uh, you've been also involved recently in promoting female hockey. I know that it's it's turned the corner a little bit, but you're still out there promoting it for hockey for everyone. Well, I think hockey is for everyone. I think hockey is a game that you can play for your entire life because uh, of the low impact exercise that you can get, the enjoyment of, it, of playing the game, the many different leagues around the country. Uh, there is a, there is an opportunity for everybody to play if, if they want, hopefully. Supporting women's hockey, I think, uh, has been something that uh, has been a you know passion for mine for a long time. Uh, equal opportunity, obviously, giving women, girls a chance, giving them role models to look up to, giving them an avenue to play, not only through minor hockey, but then through college hockey, Olympics, and then obviously professional opportunity. And why not? The, the, game, the women's game has come so far. It's so amazing to watch at the highest level. For the young girls out there that want to play hockey, to have role models, to see an avenue, to see their way forward to play a game that they love, 
I think is really important. And uh, my sister, Mary Kay, who is a marketing officer for Bauer Hockey, is spearheading and behind the big movement there, really helping that along. We'll continue to make progress. Well, switching gears to the subject of our podcast, the New York Rangers, I remember right after the firings of Jeff Gordon and John Davidson, you had an interview with Michael Kay on ESPN New York Radio, and it was a great interview. You mentioned you have been standing by for years for for a job opportunity with the organization. Is that something you still want to see through? Well, that's not totally accurate, Molly, but uh, I did work with under Glenn for four years before I left to go work solely on the Kingsbridge project. I had been asked to coach after they let John Tortorella go, but under one condition that everybody thought that it was a good idea that I did coach the team. And, and I mean, by everybody, I mean the inner circle of the management and everybody around Glenn. It became apparent that, you know, they went a different direction, which was fine because I was the one who said, you guys should maybe make sure that you're all in agreement that you want me to coach the team and since then that uh, when it didn't happen that was fine I was completely fine with that I wasn't happy with the way that it did go down and the way that it uh, was relayed to me that they went a different direction but things like that happen I have no uh, ill feelings or towards uh, the Rangers uh, whatsoever I did make myself available through those years to continue on it didn't happen but that's just the way it is so I've moved on and so that was uh, the interview with Michael (laughs) Kay. I was not positioning myself for a job with the Rangers. I was only making a statement, clearly just making a statement that I didn't believe that the Rangers had enough diversity in their lineup in order to protect the players that they had. It was as simple as that, and I think it got blown out of proportion that I was making that statement as a proposition for me to be hired for the Rangers, which I have let go a long time ago and have moved on. We may have played a part in that. I know we put a headline on that story, so sorry, Mark. I guess. That's okay. That, that's okay. That's all right. uh, so as a, as a former captain, I'm curious to hear your take on how the Rangers declared they were going to name a captain at the beginning of this season and then backed out and appointed six alternates. Do you feel the Rangers need a captain? And, and what do you feel is the number one benefit of having one? I'm really hesitant to talk about any organization or any team or any player unless I actually are inside the ropes and the inner dwellings of the dressing room to understand the philosophy, the players themselves. There's so many factors that go into naming a captain. From the, Looking from the outside in, it's easy to say you should or you shouldn't, or this guy should or shouldn't be. But unless you actually know, unless you're on the inside, I stay away from actually making assumptions because I don't work under assumptions. I think it's too dangerous. Um, I, I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have enough background on the players and the, the philosophy and the direction of the team. So I don't want to enter into that. I would say, however, though, that I believe that a team uh, needs a captain. I think a team, I don't know the last time a team won a Stanley Cup without a captain. I think that leadership is done by committee. I was fortunate when I was a captain to have amazing leaders around me, both in Edmonton and in New York. Not only assistant captains, but uh, players that didn't have a letter on their jersey who were amazing leaders in their own right and did an incredible amount of work behind the scenes that never got credit for it by keeping the team galvanized and motivated, in line, singing the same uh, message up and down throughout the team's leadership from the training staff to the doctors to the management to the coaching staff has to be one unified message but the big link between all that is is the one leader of the team that that everybody can look to look to in in trying times uh, or under adversity or when things are going great it's just my philosophy uh, that I would have one if I didn't have one I would you know look to, to get one and 
and they might ha- might feel that they have an emerging captain that's not ready. That's the other thing there I, as well. Is I, I would not rush kids into a leadership position because it's a tremendous amount of responsibility. And of course, you can be a great player. And of course, you, be, you can be a great kid and, and have the, all the qualities of the leader. But you don't have any idea what you don't know as a young hockey player in the NHL and the ramifications of being a leader. Professional sports is a serious business. There's people's livelihoods at stake. There's a lot that goes into it. And to to put that onus on a player who's not ready, uh, the benefits from it is, the, and the, the returns are just not worth it. So they have to be patient, and they might recognize that. But at the same time, I'm still saying, in my opinion, uh, every team does need a singular leader, but with great leadership underneath them. The Messiah is on up in the blue seats with Ron Duguay, Molly Walker, Jake Brown here, and the new book is out. No one wins alone. Get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever books are sold. Go get it because there is something you address in the book. You been talking about that i was intrigued by and you know we talked about this a little bit with dan carcillo uh, the former ranger about psychedelics and and mushrooms and you opened up how a shroom trip changed your life mess can you tell us about that well uh like any 18 to 19 year old uh, <laughs> kid traveling the world with a little bit of money and looking for adventure uh, i i was that guy uh, i love to travel i love to learn i love to see different cultures different people different ways of life different philosophies, different religions. And to me, the travel was fun and exciting to see new places, but it was also the learning experience behind the travel that really kind of excited me. And it really kind of got me away from hockey and the year. And this particular trip, someone thought it would be a good idea to go do that. So uh, like any 18, 19 year old, I thought a great idea. Uh, We did it. Uh, And of course, uh, it was an incredible experience uh, in many different ways. But what really transpired out of it was how uh, natural mushroom grown naturally could have that effect on the brain and be that powerful of an experience. And I felt that if that's the case, how can I do this naturally? How can I train my mind to be stronger, to be better, to be more resilient, be more tolerant? And I just started to delve into more Eastern philosophy into more leadership uh, books. Uh, I wanted to be better. I wanted to be more understanding. I wanted to be more knowledgeable. I wanted to get to know myself better, basically. And uh, and it was all through that experience that really kind of triggered it. And I had a, some amazing people around me that uh, were further advanced in this kind of thinking that I was that helped me along the way, including uh, my dad's brother, uh, Victor Messier, who taught at the University of New Hampshire in, in psychology. And so I just, you know, learned along the way, like anything else, it's baby steps and uh, a lot of this that burned from that one moment that how could I turn that kind of experience to make me a better hockey player to be to perform under pressure to relax at certain times and to breathe and all those things so you know it's a life journey I actually but it started uh, with something that was kind of unexpected to me that the experience I had there you know was a gateway for me into a deeper bigger understanding of me personally and and how I could hopefully become a better player mess as I was going through your book I was looking through the chapters and where I wanted to get started and what caught my eye was Chapter 17, now I can die in peace. And I'm thinking, what does this mean? And so as I go through it, it brought back a memory because I was at uh, the final game where you guys won the Stanley Cup. And there was this man, I believe as an older man, had that sign, now I can die in peace after the Rangers have won the Stanley Cup. But in that chapter, you talk about a situation which might have been a turning point in you guys winning the Stanley Cup. And it was about Mike Keenan, Coach Mike Keenan, who's a friend of the show. He was our first guest. And I've gotten to know him very well off the ice. 
not the same man. But you talk about how uh, game two you lose, or game four you guys lose, and he he had taken some of your ice time away, Leach's ice time away, and, and you felt like it was the wrong thing to do. So you go and have this conversation with Mike Keenan, and things seem to turn around after that. Can you get into that a little more? It's amazing that uh, when I grew up, I was uh, taught to respect authority. Uh, respect coaches because they were in an authoritarian position. But as you go through, you'll understand that uh, coaches don't know everything. Coaches aren't God. They're learning. They're improving uh, all the time, just as we are. They don't have all the answers. And for a coach to think that they do really puts himself in a tough position because he'll never live up to that standard that he's trying to project. You know, Mike is, is the only coach as, as coach to the Ranger uh, Stanley Cup in the last 80, 81 years. So if we just start there, there's been one coach in the, in the, in the New York Rangers history over the last 80 years that has won a Stanley Cup, and that's Mike Keenan. So I have a lot of regard for Mike, and I love Mike uh, in so many ways. And Mike did an amazing job for us that year so many different ways. Incredible behind the bench. He kept everybody accountable. He kept everybody focused. He played the right players at the right time. He did all the right things. And did he make some players mad? Yeah. Did he do some crazy things? Yeah. But you know what? One cup in 81 years. That's all you need to say about Mike Keenan. And he was a guy to, to do it. That particular game was, was interesting. Mike had been close in Philadelphia to winning a Stanley Cup. He had been close in Chicago to winning a Stanley Cup. Uh, unfortunately, Mike, on both times, teams were outgunned with talent. Uh, the Oilers were better than the Flyers back then with Wayne Gretzky and the great teams we had. And then, of course, he was up in Chicago against Pittsburgh and Mary Lemieux, and his teams uh, were outgunned. Uh, Mike did make mistakes in those some of those series. He did make a mistake in Game 4 uh, with the Rangers. But the thing that you have to remember is people do make mistakes. Leaders make mistakes all the time. But what sustains uh, a coach like Mike when he does make a mistake is the belief that he has with the people behind him because he's earned that belief and he's earned that trust. And so Mike and I and the leadership were able to work through that and get ourselves back on track and to focus in what was important at the time was what the next game, the next shift and breaking it down like that which you, which you have to do at that time of year. So that's just sports in general. That's how you know teams you know work through tough times uh, with coaches. And and Mike was uh, receptive to it. And uh, and I think it was a great learning experience for Mike to go, go through that and to have the understanding that, you know, when you get to that point of the National Hockey League, all the ass kicking and all the motivation, all that, that's gone out the window now. We're in the rowboat together at that point. We got to figure out a way to do this together. It's not you against us. And uh, I think that was a great learning experience for Mike and, and uh, another one of the process that you have to work through and on, on your journey to a Stanley Cup. And uh, ultimately, we were able to get it done. And like I said, you can never take away uh, that Mike Keenan was the coach of that team. So, Mark, we asked our Post Sports Plus members for some questions. So here we go. Bill Carter wanted to know how come you never became a head coach? Well, I think it's, uh, it, it, we spoke about it earlier. And I think, uh, you know, through my 26 years of pro and through my minor hockey, one thing that has become very apparent for myself and I think for anybody is that you have to have somebody that believes in you. If you have somebody that believes in you and gives you the opportunity, then it's up to you, obviously, to what you do with it in any position. That has not come my way, you know, and I'm fine with that. I think I, the coaching now has kind of gone by me. I, I'm not interested in coaching anymore. I, I, did raise my hand at that time that we talked about uh, where I was mentally ready to do it, but 
you have to be mentally ready to coach. And you also have to have somebody that believes that you can help in the coaching position, that believes in you as a person, that you can lead a team, you can, you know, mentor the players, you can educate the players, you can teach the players, and you can create a culture that's conducive to winning. And if you have someone that believes in you and you're able and you have that skill set, then, then you, you go ahead. But uh, the coaching for me has, uh, has gone by now. Brendan O'Sullivan is curious to hear your thoughts on Alexi Lafreniere so far. Yeah, another young player that uh, working his way through uh, becoming a pro and learning uh, what a pro is and the demands of being a professional hockey player and playing against the best players in the world. A lot of these players dominate at the junior level and superstars every step of the way and then they get to the NHL and it's like a, an awakening for them that, wow, you know, this is a big boy league. Uh, these players are great. They're big, they're strong, they're fast, they're talented. You know, I think he's... Uh, going to be a great player in the National Hockey League. Uh, I think he's a great kid. I think every interview that you hear from about uh, uh, Lafreniere is that he says the right things. I know he's from a great family. He's got a lot of respect for the game and the people that have gone before him. So I think the future is really bright. And I think there's a transition for sure about, about the uh, about the consistency that's required to play at this level. Uh, there's no shortcuts at this level if you want to be a superstar. Every game, you have to come committed to ready to play. And that's a learning process. You can't teach experience. You can't teach that. That has to come through trial and error and being taught along the way and being uh, reminded by coaches and players and people around you. But I, I think he's going to be a great player. Paul Palmer asks, what is the biggest need the Rangers have as far as adding a positional player or two to improve their chances of becoming a serious cup contender? Well, I like the moves they made in the offseason. I think they added, uh, you know, someone with Stanley Cup experience. They, they added some size. They added some grit to go along with the skill set that they have. The one thing I do like about the Rangers is they can score. And and scoring, you, you pay a premium for scoring because, first of all, it can cover up a lot of mistakes. Second of all, it uh, allows the team to get through the regular season without having to play on the tough side of the puck. For 82 games, if you can win some games five, two, six, three, six, four, where you're you got the lead, and so I think it it has if you can score goals easily, it, it's less taxing on the team to preserve yourself for the playoffs. You know, it looks like they're putting the pieces in place to really take a run, I think, at the division title this year. I, that, that's a big stretch, I know, but I think that uh, the Rangers should be a playoff team this year. I think they should be able to challenge for the division title. I think we got to wait for 40 games to this year to see, you know, how the new players fit in, how the uh, young players are progressing. Shusterka looks amazing in net. And then, of course, the leadership position. So, you know, they got a Norris Trophy winner. They got a great goalie. It sounds a little bit like 1994, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> a great goalie, a Norris Trophy winner, some good, talented forwards. So things are rounding up nicely. So let's let, let's get to the 40-game poll and see where we stand and uh, how we're looking. And then uh, I'm sure they'll make their necessary adjustments then. Miss, I'd like to end it with your thoughts and your feelings. I know you've moved on from coaching, but you're now doing television for ESPN, are you enjoying being yourself and being able to talk hockey? Because I know you watch a lot of hockey. Are you enjoying the process and being on television? Well, you know, I just remember as a kid growing up in Edmonton, uh, Saturday night uh, at 6 o'clock, uh, Hockey Night in Canada would come on. And, you know, we'd be out in the driveway shooting pucks and, and you know, with our jerseys on and 
or back then we called them sweaters, uh, emulating Bobby Orr and all the great players and would run in and have a TV dinner. That was a big, big luxury for us to be able to sit in front of the TV and have a TV dinner. And Dick uh, Irvin and Danny Gallivan would bring the game to life in the living room. And uh, it was just the most amazing experience for me to see the great players and watch on TV. I, you know, through my career and all the great broadcasters who have done the same thing over the last, you know, 50 years, and to have the opportunity to talk about hockey, uh, to hopefully share my experiences both as a player and as a teammate and as a, you know, NHL player and, and the challenges that the players face uh, throughout the regular season. I'm hopeful that I can do that, that, you know, kind of resonates with people and, and uh, helps them understand, uh, maybe educates, teaches, and have some fun while doing it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I watch hockey seven days a week in my living room anyway, so I said I might as well be doing it in front of a, a studio telecast and sharing the thoughts with uh, with some people. So it's turned out great. These people at ESPN are amazing. Steve Levy, uh, John Buchigrass have been just so accommodating and helping Chelios and I get our feet wet, and uh, it's been a great experience. Mess, I just got to know, when you have six rings, do you rock three per finger or, or three per hand, <laughs> five and then one? Do you have them all hit them? Because there's got to be days where you want to show off a little bit and wear all six. How do you wear them? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, we just we just moved, and I, I'm looking around. I don't have one picture of myself up in the house here. <laughs> the, the, the kids and my wife aren't that impressed with what I've been able to accomplish. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm uh, I, I don't wear the rings. Uh, actually, they're uh, in a safety deposit box, and uh, but that's a great thing. You know, when I go to some of these functions and all that, I think it'd be uh, be fun to to, uh, to bring them and, and show people because I know people are, are really interested in that. And, uh, so maybe uh, maybe I'll start doing that now. Maybe I'll start rocking the rocking the rings on the set of ESPN. There, that'll be fun. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be definitely an eye catcher. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it, and we'll definitely have you back on again soon. Yeah, love, love talking to you guys, and great great job on the show. It's awesome. I listen to you guys all the time, and uh, congratulations. Joining us on Up in the Blue Seats now is our Hockey Hall of Fame Rangers beat writer at the Post, Larry Brooks. Follow Larry on Twitter at NYP underscore Brooksy. Make sure you subscribe to Post Sports Plus to read more from Larry and interact with the both of us. Get your free 30-day trial now. Go to nypost.com slash sports plus. Larry, first thing we have to discuss, I feel, is the recently concluded investigation into the Chicago Blackhawks sexual assault incident from 2010. If you haven't heard, the independent investigation team at Jenner and Block found that the organization ignored sexual assault allegations against former video coach Brad Altrich during their cup run in 2010. Several members of the front office have resigned in wake of these findings, and the team has been fined $2 million for inadequate internal procedures an insufficient and untimely response in their handling of the situation. President of Hockey Ops Stan Bauman was one of those resignations. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on how the entire situation unfolded. The behavior of the Blackhawks executives who were aware of of this incident and, and the report shows that a circle of them were aware of this on the eve of the Stanley Cup Finals uh, was appalling. And, you know, it was just appalling. Certainly less appalling only because there's not a direct victim here is the lack of accountability shown yesterday by Stan Bowman, who, as, as I actually tweeted, had the ultimate I had my man mentality. And 
and basically saying it was everybody else's fault. You know, he assumed something would be done when he passed it along. The, you know, the, the typical non-apology apology that, that we've become so accustomed to over the last number of years. But, um, you know, hopefully this opens up people's eyes. I mean, it was, you know, the Blackhawks organization has much to answer for. There are three Stanley Cups now in, in six years from 10 to 15 sort of sort of recedes into a, a very seedy background, I think. And I think the reputation of everyone on that team has uh, it takes a hit. Everybody on the team takes a hit because some of the behavior that was described in, in the wake of the um, incidents is, is off-putting. It, it's saying it's unacceptable and appalling probably doesn't even uh, do justice uh, to what happened back then. So hopefully, uh, and listen, the, the fine levied against the Blackhawks is, is is a joke. I mean, you know, honestly, two million dollars. <laughs> you know, it's like a player being fined five thousand dollars for concussing. You know, a guy who's making ten million is fined five thousand. You know, the Wirtz family owns the Blackhawks, I and mean, how much are they worth? And you know, how much are the Blackhawks worth? And it's a two million dollar fine. So that's certainly, uh, <laughs> you know, that's that's eye opening too. I would I would think that Joel Quenville who was the head coach then and is now the coach of the uh, Panthers, has some explaining to do. And Gary Bettman said he will talk to him because he was in a meeting uh, about this. And I think there may be some issues ahead for for Joel Quenville, but it's a you know it's a it's a very unhappy uh, chapter in in in, in the NHL's uh, life. Well, Larry, let's let's bring it back to New York. Uh, we just went through some really high with the Rangers winning four in a row, and then a low, taking it back to Madison Square Garden playing against Calgary, and they get defeated in a way where Coach Gallant wasn't very happy. And I think his message to certain players. If we're going to lose, we're going to compete hard. We're going to be hard to play against. I guess he directed that to one of his young players that he felt like this might be a good time for him to learn something about playing the NHL as a young man and the compete level, and that's Lafreniere. What is it that uh, you're getting out of this? Because I know Lafreniere came, he has come out and he has addressed it, and I like how he's addressed it. But what are you, what have you seen now in, in Coach Gallant from the winning and the losing? That he's actually, that he's very consistent in his message. He wants them to play a certain way. He wants them to play, to take the safe route. He wants them to play a chip it in game if they don't have anything. He expects the Rangers to win the 50-50s and he expects them to be hard on the puck all over the ice. And on Monday night, coming back and, and listen, I, I, I do think that uh, you do factor in the fact they were playing their seventh game in 12 nights and we're coming off a long trip. I think you factor that in, but I don't, I don't think you use that. I don't, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think it's justified to use that as an excuse for the way the Rangers in a lot of ways reverted back to the way they played last year and maybe the year before when, when they were playing poorly. Yesterday's message, when, when Gallant, first Gallant held a, a video session with the team and, and had a meeting with the team, which, which uh, this is not customary for him uh, from his stops in uh, Vegas and, and Florida. He's, he's not a big video guy, but yesterday certainly it was warranted. He talked about uh, later in the day, he talked about how he needed, you know, how he was, you couldn't make these cute plays. And, you know, you have to make this safe play when, when, when the cute play wasn't there. You couldn't try and make these passes between your legs, he said. And, uh, you just have to, you know, be simple on it. And 
honestly, if you had given him a Boston accent and if you had sprinkled in the the phrase East West a couple of times, it would have been David <laughs> Quinn talking. <laughs> you know, you know, it, it was it was it was the same message. Like, you know, guys, we've got to play a certain way. So, you know, I, the Rangers are, are are off on Wednesday and then they go back to practice Thursday, and so they'll have some rest this week and play Friday night against Columbus. And I think it'll be instructive to see how how the team responds to that. I also think that they are not going to go anywhere um, without production from Panarin and Zibanejad. They're just not. And and their top six in general, but two of their top six you know, have been out for a while. Strom just came back. Kako's still out. So it's not fair really to evaluate the top six. But it is fair to say seven games in, they need a lot more from Panarin, whose start is, is puzzling, and they need more from Zibanejad. They just need more production. Rangers have nine five-on-five goals in seven games. Mika has one, and Artemi has none. So, you know, they, they you know, it doesn't matter what system you're playing in, your best players have to score some goals. Larry, do you think it's been a little bit of a learning curve for the players because they have Coach Quinn, who was pretty hard on them on uh, being very specific on how to play, where there was almost, a, according to Strom, a little too much tension. And now playing with Gallant, they felt they could be more relaxed which I guess some of that you can see it. The players seem happier trying things, maybe being a little casual with the puck. But now it's like, no, 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 no. You could be relaxed. You could try things, but there's still certain things you cannot do. You think that that's kind of what we're going through right now with them learning that be happy, be relaxed, try stuff, but there's certain things you just can't do. I think that's fair. Um, I, th- I think there's an adjustment and – I'm sure the adjustment period varies from player to player, how quickly they take to you know, what has been called a new system. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, th- I think there's an adjustment period, but I'm not sure that explains an Aaron and, and Zibanejad. Maybe it does to a certain extent. I, I wouldn't discount that, but they're seven games in now, and they played a certain way in Nashville on Thursday. And that actually is, is sort of the template. You know, they were they were just tough all over the ice. They won all their battles against the team that came physically. And, and I think that's what Gallant expects. He expects them to play hard for 60 minutes. And, you know, when, and I think I've, I've, I've talked about this before, but when I spoke to Yarmir Yager after the Rangers hired Gallant, or, or maybe it was just before they hired him and, and he was the clear front runner, you know, Yager loved playing for Gallant. And he said, it's great for the, he said, it's great for the top guys. He's great for the top guys he said but if you don't do what he wants you're gonna sit he said there was a and, and he you know he recounted a, a situation where he he was playing i think with huberdo and barkov and they had a you know they had a rough game and and they're turning the puck over and they were benched the other issue with with galan not an issue but uh, out of his reputation was that he doesn't coddle young players he expects what he expects and it doesn't matter if you're uh zavanajad lafreniere dryden hunt if you don't do it at some point it's going to come back and cost you minutes and we haven't seen that yet but i i think that you know we're probably Probably, uh, we're probably on the cusp of that. He, he is quiet, but he is demanding. There should be no mistake about that. You know, this is not a walk on the beach playing for Gerard Gallant. He has a different way. He has, I think, left ownership of, of the room to the players, which I, I think was um, was part of an issue the last three years, was part of the issue the last three years that the players thought that the head coach was too involved in their business. And so from that standpoint, Gallant has left ownership to the team leaders, to, to the players. He wants what he wants. And if you don't give it to him, you're going to pay the price. Something we haven't touched 
touched on a lot on this podcast is the Vitaly Kravtsov situation. If you haven't read our coverage in the post, Kravtsov is currently in Russia. He was suspended for the team for refusing his AHL assignment, and it's looking like a trade is on the horizon. I'm just curious, Larry, if you had an update surrounding that or if you just had any additional context you could provide on that front. No, as, as, as far as I know, uh, there were a, a handful of teams, maybe more, that have uh, inquired about Kravtsov, but it doesn't sound to me as if there's anything imminent on this. I think Chris Drury has set a price, and whether that is a top prospect, a grade A prospect, or a younger player who might be able to play top six minutes or uh, top nine minutes right now and, and has a controllable contract or is on a... And yeah, he has to have a controllable contract because we know the cap squeeze that's facing the team beginning next year. And until un, until Drury gets what he has said is the price, I, I can't imagine there's any reason to make a move. Now, Could if Kravtsov changes his mind and, and wants to come back, would they accept him back? I think that's a different conversation. But there's no no indication that Kravtsov has either changed his mind or that the Rangers over the last couple of weeks now have implored him to change his mind. You know, he's missed a lot of hockey again. You know, he hasn't played in a couple of weeks. Maybe he's skating in Russia. Maybe he's not. But I think right now he's he's just a, uh, a non-person. He's an asset if someone wants to come get him. But you know, if you're trading for prospect, then it really doesn't matter to the Rangers whether the trade is made now or it's made in the offseason. If they're not going to get someone back who's going into this lineup, then the Rangers may as well wait until the offseason when there's a different dynamic and, and perhaps Kravtsov then becomes part of a bigger trade or maybe he becomes part of a trade um, around the deadline if the Rangers are asking. But I don't sense there's any pressure on Drury. I don't sense there's any pressure on the Rangers to make a move on this. All right, Larry. Well, we'll let you go. Thanks so much for your time again, and we'll chat again next week. All right. Sounds good, Molly. Episode 61, the Rick Nash edition of Up in the Blue Seats, our Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake Brown and Andrew Hartz for producing the show. Do us a favor, give us a five-star rating and write in a nice review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it. For number 10, Ron Duguay, I'm Molly Walker. We will return next Thursday. Thanks for listening and enjoy the Rangers games.